I'm Dr. Susan Carland and welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. This time we're doing things a little differently and taking you to a recent panel discussion on the topic of positive and inclusive responses to racism. The live event was called Racism It Stops With and was held by the Monash Migration and Inclusion Centre as part of National Unity Week. Our expert guests were Nidal Nguyen, lawyer and human rights advocate, Professor Jacinta Elston, Pro-Vice-Chancellor Indigenous, and Div Palay, CEO of Mind Tribes, and Emeritus Professor Andrew Marcus from Monash University. So sit back, join me and my fellow panellists for part one of our discussion on how we can effectively tackle racism. Welcome, everyone. I am joining you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people and I pay my respect to their elders past and present. And I would also like to pay my respect to the elders past and present of the lands that you are on this evening. Well, we do have an absolutely stellar panel for you tonight. I think they're going to knock your socks off because we are tackling a big question. Racism, it stops with what? With who? I'm going to start by asking each of the panellists just to give us a very brief description. Tell us about your work. Give us a brief description of your work and how your work, what your work tells us about racism. Jacinta, I want to start with you. Thanks, Susan. Um, first, let me also acknowledge traditional owners, the land of the Kulin nations that we're on tonight. I'm, uh, as Susan said, Professor uh, and Pro-Vice-Chancellor at Monash University leading the Indigenous agenda. For many years I've been working in Indigenous health and helping to shape and unpack um, some of the problems that we've seen in our health systems. Um, I, I think for me one of the things that I can see now still after this amount of time is that racism is much more deep-seated than we've really anticipated. Um, And I think for the work that we do in the university and the work that myself and other colleagues are are trying to champion, it's about a recognition of the fact that Australia was a country that was here before 1788. And really it's that recognition that the taking of Australia, the settlement of Australia, the colonial settlement of Australia is all on the premise of land that was stolen. And that's a deep part of of our story as a country, I think. And that's one of the reasons why we can't expect to see racism dealt with in many other sectors when we haven't dealt with that. Thank you, Jacinta. Div, tell us, what does your work teach us about racism? Um, Well, Our work is really about behavioural change um, and it is about understanding and unpacking mindsets and attitudes towards race. Um, So we we really find that, um, as you said, Jacinta, it's much more deep-seated than we thought. Um, And what we're finding is that there's an acknowledgement that racism occurs, but there isn't the capacity and capability to address the harm that racism causes and also to educate uh, people about um, pervasive harm that continues in workplaces. So that that acknowledgement is not enough. Uh, it is about building capability to continuously address it and also to acknowledge the historic um, trauma of racism as well. So we're not just seeing that capability. Um, and I can see the stark contrast because for the audience, uh, I'm South African born, so 26 years of living under apartheid in segregation. So I was very, very um, comfortable talking about my own race. Uh, but then 19 years in Australia, 
teaches me that this is not a dialogue of the day. It's such a difficult conversation. So that's that's some of my uh, experiences in the workplace, especially. Thank you, Div. All right, let's call on our panelists who are joining us digitally now. Naya Doll, tell us about the work that you do and how what it tells us about racism in Australia. I am a, um, a migrant, recent migrant to Australia. Well, maybe not too recent, since 2005. And quite recently, there have been, um, I suppose, conversations about, um, you know, migrants being in themselves participants in the colonial project that established Australia and what that means in terms of our relationship with First Nations people. So even in terms of racism, that is still a relevant um, conversation. But for what I do, I don't, um, professionally, I do, I would like to think that I do something different. And I think that also that comments on the inescapable nature of racism in that, um, in that a lot of the, the work that I think has made me come to this panel today has been work that I've had to do or respond to because, um, because of, political environments or conversations that felt um, uh, personal because they were a defining aspect of those conversation was race. And obviously the African gang uh, was, was one of them, um, but also uh, often how issues of race um, come up in the Australian media. So in terms of what I think my works um, teach about racism, um, I think I try to communicate the, um, the personal impact of, of racism and try to ground it more in uh, both the health impacts of racism, but also the structural impacts of racism and take the conversation away from just being framed in terms of free speech and in terms of the idea that it's only hurt feelings that are in birth. Thank you, Nayadol. And our last panellist tonight, Andrew Marcus. Tell us about the work that you do and what it teaches us about racism in Australia. Um, my background is in part a historian, a historian of, say, 19th century colonialism, uh, the white Australia policy, and most recently in surveys to try to understand Australian opinion. And I guess if I was going to just sort of make one point, it would be that um, it can be useful in some respects to have a nuanced conversation in this space rather than um, a, a blanket combination. Um, you know, I come from, I think, a couple of perspectives, con con contrasting the real and the ideal. Um, and I think having the real in mind, that is what our society is capable of and what are not capable of, I think that's part of a, a useful conversation. And the other aspect is with regard to opinions, um, for me, if we blanketly condemn Australian society in terms of its racism, and of course there's a basis for doing that, I'm not contesting that, but if we do that, and if we say that um, you know, things are getting worse, we need to, I think, examine the evidence on which that is based, which we do, and to realise that what we may be doing is actually giving a free kick to the racist. Because we could actually be saying, hey, you people are winning. This country's getting worse. This country's becoming more intolerant. And before we do that, I think it's important that we actually examine the evidence for that. And of course, the evidence is not necessarily simple and clear cut. It is in some respects, but in other respects, it's clouded. Mm. Okay? Sorry, go on, Andrew. No, I mean, I, I just wanted to sort of put mm. that on the board that um, in some respects, 
we're dealing with a totality, but in other respects, we're not. Mm. And if we don't also look to acknowledge um, where this country has come from and where it is today, um, we could be making a mistake. Like just, I'll give you one example of a, a recent survey, not our survey, a survey conducted by the Lowy Institute. Uh, and they were looking at attitudes to people of Asian background, particularly people from China. And they found that, you know, say 31% of people reported experience of discrimination, but 40% reported that people had actually come up to them and supported them. So that's part of the balanced conversation. Andrew, what is your research? You know, you do a lot of research on discrimination. What do Australians think of the quote unquote other? What does your research tell us about how racism in Australia is tracking? Is it changing over time? What, what is your data uh, telling us about social cohesion and racism? Yeah, so we've got a, a most recent survey will be launched at the end of November, but the, the story is fairly clear. Um, contrary to what I would have expected, I don't know what you and the audience would have expected, uh, in July 2020, so well into the pandemic, we actually got a more cohesive evidence of a more cohesive society. We, our index of social cohesion went up considerably. And we were not the only ones to do that. Um, the Australian Wellbeing Survey uh, conducted at Deakin University found the same result. So, so there's, there's a paradox here. And the paradox is many people report terrible experiences both on an institutional level and on an individual level. And when we look at surveys, not only our survey, but a number of surveys, uh, we're getting very positive indicators relative to what they might have been. You know, in Australia, and there's no question about this, there's a hierarchy of racial preference. Yeah? And if you're in certain categories, you are treated differently. And our surveys track that and show that. But when we look for evidence, things are getting worse more the evidence points to stability rather than things getting worse and in some respects getting better. Nidal, I'm going to come to you next with the big question. Why do you think we do still struggle with racism so much as a society? It's a good question and I'm still reflecting on the comments of the professor about nuance um, and I think there is room for nuance um, in these conversations but I'm not sure um, to what extent um, that replies to some of the real problems that seems to suggest that it's gotten worse in some cases. And I think that goes into why we still have a problem with racism. I think part of the problem is how do we define racism? What constitutes racist conduct? And I think, um, and I'm not suggesting that Professor work says this, but I think part of the the issue that I've experienced in the public space is that we tend to recognize racism if it presents itself in a rude, aggressive, violent way. Almost an expectation that it has to come with the Ku Klux Klan burning a flag before we can name it racist. And I think that makes it very difficult for the people that experience racism to not look like what snowflakes are when they complain about the experiences in, in, in their life. But there is definitely a difficult nuance, not just in terms of 
how other makes us experience what it is to be in Australia, but how we also experience Australia. For example, I have had an education in Australia. I have had a job in Australia. I've been relatively, um, if I could use the term, successful and done well in Australia. Clearly all those things would be hard to achieve in a country that was completely racist. But at the same time, I've also had my mother's call a black dog. I've been called the N-word walking on the street. There's been a whole political campaign run in the media on the backs of people of African descent. There was numerous racist articles written about them. Those were not just anecdotal experiences. Those were state conversations defining how people like me should experience what it is in Australia. And that is difficult to explain to somebody else because if a white, maybe for the audience here, if you are a person who is white, I don't think you sit on a television watching it and praying that a random white person committing an offense is going to reflect on you, you know. But every time a Sudanese black kid Sometimes even you know, a Muslim kids does something wrong. We are praying that next day that it doesn't cast a doubt on all of us from those communities and whether we should be in Australia or not. And that's not just you know, a small group of people. Those are politicians with power and with voice and can implement policies that affect, disproportionately affect people like us. So during the first, or one of the first incident of African gang narrative, the then Minister of Immigration introduced a policy that reduced the number of people from Africa by about 70%. That hasn't changed until today. So I think, I think in some ways, it is not the distinction between reality and aspiration, it is, the distinction between different realities and different aspirations. Because I think to live as a white person in this country is a very different experience to living as a black person in this country. So I think that reality definitely isn't as nuanced as one would like it. But at the same time, I'm conflicted because I do know that there are amazing aspects about this country and that there are things that all of us as a citizen should work towards and that not every Australian is racist. But I also know that the occasions for me and my children and my mother and my community to experience racism at a personal uh, uh, and also at a media level and also at a political level and also even at the federal level, those are no longer conversations about my personal experience. Those are institutional responses to that shape the very existence of myself and people who look like me. And of course, I haven't mentioned Indigenous people because they are capable hands to, to cover that. Mm -hmm. Div, the big question, why do you think we do still struggle with racism in Australia? I think because there's ultimately like fear. Mm. There's absolute fear um, from white people and um, people who have migrated here a long, long time ago who are from European descent to really talk about race. Um, and I think it's almost like a, a mental block about um, that fear 
or um, what I hear from people in business is the um, when I talk about South Africa and affirmative action and the fact that we, for example, uh, needed to have a black um, quota met and we had two-year transitions plans for senior white uh, South African executives to exit their roles and have black South Africans take those roles and there was a, a very steady, pragmatic plan towards achieving that. Um, I've heard some very fearful responses of that because um, white leaders feel, oh, I've got to give up something. Mm. I've got to give up something to put this in place, to readdress that imbalance and that inequity. Um, so I hear a lot of fear and I think we struggle with it because absolutely, um, with Jacinta's point, I agree. Like I found that really perplexing that we could not acknowledge first people and what chance did I have as a migrant to actually get um, the dialogue on my own race and identity acknowledged when first people are acknowledged? So my first question in a corporate setting is to ask um, clients, do you have a reconciliation action plan that's meaningful? You know, um, that for me is is really key. Um, and then comes the, the next dialogue on race. And uh, as a small company, we kind of punch above our weight in that we, we don't accept a client who doesn't have a meaningful reconciliation action plan because I'm not going to do racism work mm. without that in place. But I, I do see the fear um, and the struggle around it. Um, and I see a lot of initiatives trying to understand the language on race, but still I feel the investment is very much uh, disproportionate to white Anglo-Saxon leaders and them coming to terms with racism as opposed to tackling racism systemically uh, in society and in business. Um, so I do feel that there's this, this fear and protectionism around it, um, you know, not acknowledging First Nations people and there we are stuck in this holding bay. Um, and I feel that it is something that will hold us back continuously because when I compare the South African experience of you know, transformational effort and everyone had to just get behind it because there was legislation around it and I don't feel that we have a legislative um, you know, environment that actually protects uh, people from experiencing racism and actually legislates for a transformation effort on racial uh, equity. Uh, and until that happens, we're going to be still stuck and waiting for good people to do something positive uh, with it. So, yeah, it's not a very easy conversation mm. and answer, I'm, sh I'm sure. Andrew, you mentioned about how your research shows that some things are getting better, but there are some things that it sounds like what you're saying is some things are kind of baked in. What, you know, what is your understanding of the, these areas of racism that Australia still struggles with certain groups or whatever? Why are we still struggling with this, Andrew? So, so you're surprised by that. I don't think I'm surprised. Okay. <laughs> I'm not surprised because I understand, I think I do, you know, how societies function and mm. how hierarchies function. You know, we could be having a conversation about class. Mm. We would say... You know, why do we have this class system, et cetera, et cetera? And un understand, you know, um, that, that it's not an easy thing to, to you know, expect that um, class prejudice and so on will, will disappear next week. Like the example of South Africa. You see, what happened in South Africa was a transference of power. And in the context of the transference of power, legislation was passed and the society made great strides. We haven't had that in Australia, nor are we likely to have that in Australia. Um, so, I mean, the issue that we have in Australia is this embedded hierarchy mm. that informs people's understandings. And we have colour prejudice. And we have a whole range of issues such as that. 
and they're extremely difficult to deal with. And I don't want to be understood as, as minimizing that in any way whatsoever. But what I'm saying is that a conversation that says, listen, you've actually come 10% of the way. We want you to come the next 10% of the way. Now, I could be wrong, but for me, that is a more productive conversation. It's not the only conversation we need to have because we need to call out systemic racism. We need to call out colour prejudice and all of that. But at the same time, for me, it's important that we acknowledge where this society was and where it is today and where we would like it to be um, five, ten years down the track. Mm. All right, let's get into the details. Div, I want to start with you. You're an expert in diversity, racism, inclusion in the workplace. Often workplaces have diversity training workshops that we have to do. <laughs> what do you think about them? Are they a good idea? If they're not, what should we be doing instead in the workplace? Look, in the workplace, I think there's absolutely a place for education on racism, for sure. Um, but I really have an issue with the kind of education that's provided. Um, and, and the education itself, when I think about it, um, I've seen some really poor examples of education where it, it almost racially profiles and stereotypes a person. So lots of online modules. So when you think about, when we, we look at, analyze and audit um, diversity and inclusion spend, and you'll see very repeatable patterns in the spend that there's actually a small amount of money allocated to dealing with racism, and it's normally online compliance kind of hygiene models, mm. uh, modules completed um, normally at induction, and that's it. So everybody gets a broad brush understanding of it. What is the um, behavioral response then? So I know now what racism is. What do I do when I see it in the workplace? What do I do when um, I'm actually potentially the per perpetrator of that racism? Um, what am I, if I'm the victim of it, what do I do then? There isn't enough of that um, infrastructure after the training and education. Uh, and I've also seen, I've got to call out the fact that I've seen, um, you know, large corporate and public businesses spend money on, um, white diversity and inclusion practitioners who are, uh, are delivering the racism training. And I go, you don't have any lived experience of this. Um, how are you going to train and share what it actually feels like to experience racism? And that for me is just absolutely a no-no. Um, I'm happy to co-facilitate something with someone from a uh, a, a white background, and I, I take um, Andrew's uh, nuance uh, comment on board because I do think that you need to bring people on a journey, and if you make them more fearful and hesitant of racism, you're likely not uh, to get the change that you need. So that's important, important point. But I, I do think you need to face up to the lived experience of racism where someone can account for how they experience it in the community, how they experience it at work, how they experience it at um, you know, their children's school and pick up, how their children also experience racism. When I think about my own life, I think you know, um, we've got three children, all born in Australia, all Australian, but yet they still have to justify their identity. Um, they still get labelled as a as a migrant, um, as uh, and they still do get the stereotypical racial comments that we get we've lived uh, lived with. And I think, oh my gosh, you know, my son is in university and he's still getting that kind of backlash. Like, when will that stop? And the conversations that we have at our dinner table is to prepare our children mm. to face that every day, 
wherever they are, and that's wrong. So when I think about it, you know, that experience, that ex lived experience needs to be shared with leaders who have power and privilege in the workplace to be able to see it for what it is, and also for people of color in the workplace to have that visible, um, co direct conversation with their leaders, because it's actually, you know, a, a lot of people of color that we interview uh, from a qualitative interview perspective say, they are just tired of talking about their own racial identity. Mm. Um, you know, it's a hard conversation to have and it's hard not to be seen only for your racial identity in the workplace. So I do think that training and development programs have a long way to go. And if anyone's listening, um, you know, now and actually is in charge of a diversity inclusion budget or is a leader in an organization, I would absolutely urge you to interrogate the spend, one, whether it's disproportionate, to actually um, assess the value of the the application of any learning uh, and actually to measure it from a change perspective. Mm -hmm. Is it actually doing any good uh, to people of color in the business? If it's not doing any of those things, probably time to stop the spend and re-audit and re-evaluate what you do next. Jacinta, you are an expert in so many areas, but you are one of the many things you do is you are a pro vice chancellor at a university, so you have good insights into education. And one thing I hear people say a lot is that what we need to have is better uh, education about racism and race and inclusion in schools. Uh, that's, you know, that's where we need to start focusing. Do you think that is a good idea? Is that where we need to really, like, often what people are saying is, look, it, we can't be helped. It's our generation, forget them, start with the kids. Is that what you're... Um, what you're seeing? Look, I think there is a lot of tendency um, for us to say that the schools need to do more in these spaces. But I think we also have to acknowledge the hard work that teachers and educators do do out there. I mean, I, I hear this as well about climate change, for example, that, oh, we need to put climate change education into school. Actually, the schools are talking about it all the time. The classrooms are talking about it all the time. Um, and I think teachers are genuinely trying to bring in these conversations into their classroom and they're trying to look for it. Um, do I I think that we've done enough to equip them to be able to do it. That's another piece. So actually you can't educate people about these sort of things and, and have a robust experience of it if you yourself aren't prepared to do that. And so, you know, I've seen many a situation where students have walked out of a, um, even a, at the university level, walked out of a tutorial and said, I'm never going back into that tutorial. Um, a well-meaning tutor has tried to have a conversation about something that has led to a rather large racism debate. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, the person of colour, not necessarily an Indigenous person, but a person person of colour who's um, felt like they've needed to defend a situation or a circumstance has walked out feeling very injured um, and it's polarised groups. So I think we do need to do some work to support um, teachers, educators, people in systems to be able to actually enter into this work. It's not work that you can do without a set of skills, I don't think. So I do think we need to put some focus into that. Um, the other challenge that I think we have, um, and again, from an Indigenous perspective, is that we are often seeing that Indigenous First Nations people here in Australia and around the world are included in a diversity and inclusion agenda. We're not a diversity and inclusion agenda. We are the First Nations people of this land. And so when you hide an Indigenous uh, program, project, uh, commitment inside of a diversity and inclusion agenda, you actually hide your commitment to the agenda. And so, you know, I know myself, many of my colleagues call for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs and efforts to be brought out of, outside of a diversity and inclusion agenda. Um, 
to not have that sit under that banner. And I, I mean, even if I went to uh, North America, you'd often see First Nations people being thrown in under a um, uh, under the banner of minorities. Um, when we think back to the Black Lives Matters issues last year uh, in the US, all of that focus was on African-American people and rightly so, that's where that issue happened and that's where other issues happened. There's very little talk about the fact that Native Americans, Native Hawaiians, Native Alaskans experience the same type of mistreatment and yet they're the first first peoples of, those country, of that country. So I think we've got to do a little bit more work. Again, it comes back to that nuanced argument and, and conversation of, of separating out the issues. You can't talk diversity and inclusion and just banner people together, disabilities, gender inequities, they all have their own sort of aspects to this and I think that's one of the challenges. Also the other problem is you can't send kids home from school more equipped to have these conversations if the households that they're going into are not going to be supportive of them. So we've got to do this work as a society, across society. We can't just expect teachers to do it with our schools. Yeah, and like people say, just give up on the older generation. That can't, can't be the way, way to do it. We can't do that, yeah. I think that a lot of these um, opinions, I mean, who who would vote on Uluru's statement from the heart tomorrow? It's not going to be the under-18s. Yeah. So we can't just start yeah. with the kids in school. We've got to make this a, a society-wide, um, multi-generational focus, I think, to, mm. to think about these issues. Mm. Nayadol, you've mentioned tonight uh, about the role of politicians, uh, the media, um, and people often do say that the media and politics, they need to do a better job in leading our conversations and, our, and our, uh, the way we talk about racism and deal with it, but also just who is in politics and who is in our media. What do you think does need to happen in these, these big arenas that are such culture shapers for our country? Yeah, I think um, the term culture shapers is so important and also conscious shapers, like they kind of define what becomes important um, and urgent in our society um, and they shape the priorities of the nation and the society as a whole. So they're two extremely important institutions and they're also um, their representations in terms of um, racial representation is very, very small in both cases, um, which I think plays a big part in the way national stories are told. I think in the media, um, I'm going to make a very bold accusation. I think that in the shrinking space of traditional media and with the competition with social media, that race has, now has economic currency. It's, it's useful as a tool of, of clickbait. So I think beside the inherent assumptions that some people might have about races, there is the fact that it's Ghana attentions, articles about race Ghana attentions. And there've been, um, there's been um, research by showing that um, social media like Facebook and even Twitter have a kind of a default setting that um, generate more attention for contacts that are, for content that are enraging or, you know, um, cause, big emotions, I suppose, and race is one of them. And politically, I think race still have political currency. Um, I think um, some of it is blatant, like we saw with, um, I've forgotten his name, I think he, he, he gave a speech about the final solution, attended an, a rally by neo-Nazi and he was a member of, of parliament. There have been some really controversial members of the far right in the United States that have 
had welcome in attendance with federal members of parliament. Um, they are in fact members of the far right that have moved to Australia because somehow they think kind of more safe and welcoming and some who have said those comments. Um, so I think, um, I think until racism or race politics doesn't get the vote, um, I don't. I don't think that things are going to change. I, I. I think that. I think when it comes to changes in the media and changes in the political scenes, I don't have a lot of um, hope um, in them. Um, I, I. I think that things are going to remain difficult, um, and that the minorities without the political power or the media influence will definitely um, continue to bear the brunt of it. So I know that's a very pessimistic view, but I think it's more closer to the truth. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that, you know, the general society would behave in the same way, um, but I think some media um, organizations definitely now don't really care about, about uh, the, the, the influence of, of putting racist or racially charged articles out there. In fact, I think sometimes they do it because of it, you know, and, and then there is a continual reaction after it. So you, you put out an article, there's outrage, you write another article about the outrage and how it's pushing other people to the side. So it's become like a very typical experience that play over and over again. And the, the most difficult part is that I don't think the, the media authority um, is equipped to be able to um, deal with the issue of racism because, I mean, <clears throat> there is a question generally that I think it's posed for articles or opinion pieces that are deemed or people of, of, of diverse background deemed to be racist, which is, um, is it in the public interest? And I think to determine what's in the public interest, you have to have an image of what that public is. And if the public is in your conception, predominantly say people who don't experience that particular race, racist issue, then it, it becomes purely a matter of, of free speech and therefore it seems arguably in the public interest to do so. But it doesn't really go on deeper and ask whose interest because if you see at the, uh, what is the public? Um, if you see the constant divergence of views about whether something is racist or not, you could almost see a clear cut reaction where, you know, in my experience, people of color are saying this is certainly racist. And then most of the commentators, some in the media, some in politics who are who happen to white saying, this is just freedom of speech. This is people being snowflakes. These are people not, you know, they, this is how Australia works. But of course, the very kind of people that have this very broad notion of free speech will hound you out of the country if you happen to be a Muslim young girl who said something inappropriate about anything. So what do we culturally prioritize is and, and protect um, doesn't include most of the times the interest of or the sensitivity or sensibilities of minorities. That concludes part one of our panel discussion, Racism It Stops With. Join us next week for part two as our panellists share some positive initiatives that tackle systemic racism and prejudice in society. 
They also share some tips on what we as individuals can do to make a difference. I'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.